0: We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives. But can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon. the your
1: parenting mojo podcast regular listeners will recall that this is the second episode in a two-part series which was prompted by a listener emailing me to say that she and her partner don't want to have another child but they're worried about the impacts of not having siblings on their daughter we looked at that topic last week but i didn't think it was fair to the other 80 percent of the families in the country assuming all of them are listening who have more than one child so today's episode is for all of you I'd like to extend a warm welcome to my guest Susan McHale, Distinguished Professor of Human Development and Family Studies and Professor of Demography, among other things, at Penn State University. Research in her lab focuses on family systems dynamics, including youth's and parents' family roles, relationships, and daily activities, and how these are linked to family members' psychological and physical health and development. Her lines of research include sibling relationships, family gender dynamics, and the sociocultural context of family dynamics. And since we've already done episodes related to those second two topics, I'm especially interested to learn about how all of these come together and are intertwined with the idea of siblings. Welcome, Professor McHale. Glad to be here. All right. So I wonder if we could kind of start at the end, in a way, <laughs> with the developmental outcomes of sibling relationships and then work our way back to the beginning, because there is way more research on the developmental outcomes than I could have imagined. I wonder if you could summarize some of the state of the current research on several different things and, and we could kind of work our way down a little list that I have here. Um, the first one being risky behavior like adolescent sex. I had no idea that siblings was related to that.
2: Right. Um, Most of the research has been on sibling resemblance. And of course, siblings are genetically related. It's not just a social process. And some work has been trying to disentangle the role of shared genetics and shared environments in sibling similarity and all kinds of risky behavior from substance use to adolescent sex. I don't think there's quite a definitive answer. Usually Behaviors are complex and so multiply determined, so there's likely to be some genetic load and some socialization uh, between siblings, as well as growing up in the same family that all come together in helping to explain sibling resemblance. Uh, In our research, we've tried to study the processes through which siblings become more alike or more different from one another by actually asking siblings whether they try to be like one another or whether they try to de-identify or work to be different from their sibling, try to be different because they don't want to be the same kind of person that their sibling is. And what we see is that in sibling relationships that are warm and positive, siblings are more likely to say that they try to be like one another. And so on the one hand, a positive sibling relationship has good outcomes because siblings can be sources of support, uh, affection, and so forth. On the other hand, if you have a sibling who's um, really into risky behavior, a uh, warm and close sibling relationship isn't always a good thing.
1: Mm-hmm. And so you see the the warm relationship leading, the I assume, usually the younger child to model the elder child's behavior?
2: Correct. So okay. constructs like partners in crime, older siblings being gatekeepers to uh, availability of substances or uh, relationship partners. These are all ways that siblings can influence one another.
1: Mm. Is that linked to the idea of gender development as well? I'm, I'm just wondering if uh, maybe there's a younger boy who has an older girl uh, sibling. Do you see that the boy is kind of more socialized to be around women? And you know, are, are there influences that the older girl has on that younger boy?
2: Yes, oftentimes our sample sizes are too small to study the four sibling constellations, brother-brother, sister-sister, and so forth, older sister, younger brother, younger sister, older brother, um, but we have some emerging information. Um, one of the dyads that has some long-standing findings that warmth and affection can lead to problems is the brother-brother dyad. Hmm. So. An older brother who's close and warm with a younger brother can lead that child into, or they can mutually influence one another, (laughs) uh, sort of playing off one another, getting into trouble, deceiving parents, doing things behind their parents' backs, and so forth. So so the older brother really can be something of a risk factor. On the other hand, some of our studies have found that older sisters are, are protective, Hmm. Um, This is a study of uh, Mexican origin families that um, kids who had boys boys and girls who had older sisters were protected in their uh, acculturation into U.S. society in terms of engaging in risky behavior. Okay. One of the other, uh, I think, pretty interesting findings has to do with mixed sex dyads, so brother-sister, sister-brother pairs, where we found that In terms of romantic competence, being able to relate to the other sex, possibly not surprisingly growing up with a sibling of the other sex and all that that involves, you know, having your sibling's friends around, just being used to having members of the other sex in your orbit, that by the time you reach the end of adolescence, kids who have the other sex in in their lives, uh, by virtue of having a sibling of the other sex. Tend to feel more competent in the context of heterosexual relationships. Mm-hmm. So it's a mixed bag. Like most things, it's not all good things are related, but there are some good things and some potentially not so good things that come out of the same experiences.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of the ones that really surprised me were differences in health outcomes among siblings. How mm-hmm. does how can
2: siblings impact your health? Well are you thinking about the study of mexican origin families yeah, that i yeah. do? Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's um not necessarily about what siblings do but it's about being a girl or a boy and the gender socialization that is involved. And this as i said was a study of mexican origin families where the findings showed and Kim Updagraf who's at Arizona State University was the the lead on this study. But um the st- the findings showed that when mothers had more traditional gender attitudes, you know, women's place was in the home, men are the ones in charge, that kind of thing. Uh, Their daughters were substantially less likely to access healthcare in their young adult years. Hmm. So this is predicting out over about eight years where early experiences in a highly gendered environment that put men, you know, at the forefront and, and put women as more subservient were, were linked to how these young women were taking care of themselves a number of years later. Wow, uh, that is a very <laughs> surprising finding.
1: And so you're you're speaking about a study of Mexicans uh, of Mexican siblings, and uh, that leads me to wonder if you if it's possible to generalize. I know this is a big generalization, but how do sibling relationships differ across cultures in general?
2: Mm-hmm. They they do, considerably, and we've only directly studied sibling relationships in families living in the United States, so the Mexican-origin families live near the Phoenix area. We have a, a group of about 200 African-American two-parent families in the Baltimore, Philadelphia area, and then we have a sample of predominantly Anglo families in central Pennsylvania. So these families differ not just by ethnicity but we're in the country that they're living and rural urban and so forth so it's direct we don't make direct comparisons but we're much more interested in how cultural values and practices that we measure directly are linked to sibling relationship quality and so for example um, Mexican origin families have been described as being more gender stereotypical and so therefore the traditional attitudes of mothers reflect a cultural orientation to discriminate between the roles and and practices and daily activities of men versus women, girls versus boys, and so girls may be more likely to pick up on these messages in those families, Hmm. uh, leading to the differences in health uh, healthcare access. I should also mention that it's not all good things for the boys in those families either. In general, the young men in that sample accessed healthcare less than the young women so we could explain the differences between the young women in that those Mexican origin families by their mother's gender attitudes, but all it took for the boys was being a boy, hmm. and they were less likely to access health care, which is, you know, what are sort of a stereotype of men refusing to go to the
1: doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not that they're not accessing it because they're not sick, it's that they they should be accessing it and they're not.
2: Well, they're just not getting routine physical exams. Okay. Yeah. Okay but in in those families also mexican origin families are are known for their familism values as are many minority groups in the us african american families included and our studies of both african and mexican origin families show that when siblings and their parents have stronger familism values that is they see the family as central to their lives and obligations and responsibilities to the family as being highly important, distinguishing between communal-oriented or family-oriented set of values and a more individualistic, me first, um, I've got a you an know, independent, achie- uh, in- individual achievement oriented society like traditional mainstream U.S. culture. Mm-hmm. Or this orientation to family is linked to more positive sibling relationships.
1: Okay. And so I guess we're we're skipping ahead a little bit here. <laughs> I was planning on winding up to this. Um uh, but since but since we're there now, let's go ahead and talk about it. So I'm curious about this kind of love-hate dynamic that seems to go on between siblings and when I put an email out to my listeners and said, you know, do you have any, any questions about siblings that I should ask my expert next week, I, I got some responses and it seemed like a lot of them were related to, you know, my siblings just can't get along. One person gave an example of a three-year-old daughter snatching a toy out of a nine-month-old son's hands, not because she wants the thing, but just because he has it and she doesn't, or she doesn't want the younger child in her space, even when they're just kind of in the same room. Is the older child primarily looking for our attention? Because I'm thinking about the ethnographic research I've seen in countries like Mexico, where five or six siblings will play together all day while both the parents are at work. And I'm sure they have disputes occasionally, but for the most part, they're kind of responsible for each other and they just all seem to get along. And I'm curious about how the cultural construct of the family Impl- what what implications that has for the way siblings get on or don't get along with each other?
2: Well, and comparisons haven't been directly made, but anthropologists who study sibling relationships in other countries have suggested that sibling rivalry is a Western invention. Oh, really? For a couple of reasons. First, um, the familism values putting your family before yourself. You know, the group before the individual mm-hmm. mitigates against this idea that this is mine and that's yours mm. in some cultures kids don't have property right they don't hmm. have their own room they don't have their own toys whatever the family has belongs to the family and so the idea that you can't have it because it's mine or that i should have it but you shouldn't is you know a very individualistic you know personal achievement oriented ethic comes from that yeah and there are good things and bad things that come from that ethic right but, um, you know, it's a package deal. And if you're promoting individuality, self-esteem, a sense of self that is very positive, it can mitigate against being one with the group. Mm-hmm. And that whatever is mine is yours. And if you're happy, I'm also happy. See, these are, the, these are the two sides of the coin here. Trying to get at both would be ideal, but it's, it's not that easy. The other reason why other cultures may not have the same kind of rivalry is because roles are defined by gender and age. Often in other cultures, siblings are primary caregivers, like your example of the Mexican families in Mexico where an older sister or cousin, um, it's usually girls, are responsible for their younger siblings, cousins, children in their community. You know, it's not a large group but and while the parents are working in the home, um, in the fields or whatever. And in that role these girls are setting expectations and maybe bossing younger children around, but they're responsible for their well being. So it's not a it's not the case of whether, you know, you can have this toy or I can have this toy, but how we can get through the day with a minimum of fuss. Mm-hmm. So these girls have an established sense of of responsibility and authority. In other cultures, there's discrimination based on males versus females, and, and a first-born boy has the high status and can basically tell a sister, no matter how old she is, what to do, and that's legitimate. And so there's not conflict and arguments because people know their places, they know their roles, and there's not a it's not a question of arguing about it. Yeah in US mainstream culture, equal relationships are, are can be hard to figure out. Everybody mm-hmm. has to has to figure it out every day on their own. There's not established practice, which makes it much more difficult to to negotiate. Yeah. Especially for little kids, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I just digging even deeper into that, I'm just thinking about something I read in one of your book chapters uh, where you said that patterns of emotional intensity, by which I assume you mean fighting.
2: <laughs> um, I very highly positive. I mean, oh, okay. You'll never laugh and joke and, you know, only your sibling can understand your, you know, <laughs> sense of humor and the uh-huh. things that you think are funny, right? So it's Very positive, but also very negative.
1: Okay, okay. So that that emotional intensity might be a result of a cultural expectation that family members are warm and supportive – Uh, here in kind of Western cultures, but also that there is this cultural norm promoting competition and individualism, and that together those kind of support a love-hate dynamic. And that seems as though it forms another layer on top of the idea that your siblings are essentially peers in a relationship rather than one being the boss and the other one being told what to do. And that those two things together form even more tension between the siblings of, of things that they have to figure out. Is that
2: right? More intensity, right. Yeah. So people, you know, in in the context of peers, especially in childhood, most of the time kids are supervised. When kids are at home, the likelihood that they're constantly supervised, is is, unless they're very, very young, is is not so great. And so kids can let their hair down. And as I said, it, it can be very, very positive, goofing. And that's oftentimes what you see is kids are playing around and then somebody gets hurt, either their feelings or their body. And a really joyous romp turns into anger and tears in, in moments. And so you get these very high highs and these very low lows in ways that you don't necessarily with peers. Mm-hmm. And so
1: it almost seems to me if we're asking you know, what What do I do about getting my children to fight less, <laughs> we might be asking the wrong question, because it seems as though if the purpose of the fight or the argument of the dispute is your children are trying to figure out how they relate to each other and what is their place in the world. And they're kind of negotiating that on an ongoing basis. That's what's happening when they're quote unquote fighting. And that if you take away that from them, then you're taking away the tool that they need to figure that out. Is that right?
2: Well, I would say that parents can have a huge role in helping children learn problem solving and conflict resolution skills. Right. Yeah. So the fact that there's a difference of opinion is an opportunity for development. Okay. But it has to be carefully handled. You can't leave three-year-olds and five-year-olds and eight-year-olds to do this on their own. Parents really need to be in there, serving as the coach and the mediator to help kids understand why they're feeling the way they are, help them understand how the other person feels, help them come up with a solution to the problem that they both can live with. And and this is a, a really key role for parents. It's basically it's social skills training. I mean, parents are modeling these kinds of, of behaviors in their own relationships. So kids who see their parents having a difference of opinion in their marriage and that difference of opinion is resolved and the family goes on, they're in a different situation than kids who see their parents fighting and going off in a huff. And so same thing with siblings. You know, you, you the the difference of opinion is – is an opportunity or it's a threat. And depending on um, how parents handle it, kids are not going to be doing this automatically uh, unless they see it being uh, modeled, unless their parents can help them through coaching. I think I did send you a paper where we described an intervention to promote positive sibling relationships. Yeah. Yeah, you did and a major component of this intervention um, Mark Feinberg another colleague of mine is the lead on this project was to, was teaching kids social skills
1: okay and so can you tell us about that and what was the intervention and what was the result
2: oh okay um and so there are, there are these kinds of peer interventions in schools for young children preschool to school young know, young school age years And so ours was built on some work in schools with peer relationships that our colleagues, uh, Karen Bierman and Mark Greenberg, have developed over many years. But we modified it to focus on sibling relationships, so this particular relationship and with both kids involved, and issues like being able to recognize your emotions. When you start feeling, you know, bad, stop. Think about how you're feeling. Think about why you're feeling that way. Don't just react. Try to understand how the other person's feeling because you 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 tell how you feel so the other person knows. Sometimes they may be teasing you and not realizing that you're feeling badly about it or that they've taken your favorite whatever it is and don't realize how, how hurtful that was. So stating your feelings, hearing the other person's feelings, stopping and, and we, we teach social problem solving So what are some ways that that you you think would be a good solution to this potential conflict? What does the sibling think? What would work best for both of you? So how do you make a deal that you both can live with? And then making that deal, seeing how it works. I mean, it's it's pretty basic, but kids need practice doing it. It's Mm -hmm. not the automatic first thing that they do. They need to be supervised. They need to be encouraged. And that that was a major part of the um, intervention where both kids were learning how to behave toward one another. It's not good enough for one kid to learn and the other one to not know the routine. Getting both kids to learn how to handle these situations, which are going to come up. That's all there is to it. And having this be a new family routine. This is how our family deals with conflict. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we also talked about major sibling issues like differential parental treatment, which we know can lead to jealousy <laughs> and negative sibling relationships mm-hmm. um, We talked to children. We asked them to develop pictures um, about the things that are the Characteristics that they shared and characteristics that made them unique They came up with a team mascot that described what their family was like how their family was special uh, We developed timelines that showed when certain privileges were allowed in their families so younger siblings could see that, you know, when I'm nine years old, I can go on a sleepover Mm -hmm. because that's what, that kind of thing. I can ride my bike around the block, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things that they may be envious that their older sibling is doing that now, but see that 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 is in store for, for them in the future. So it was a generic social skills training for kids, but also some special issues having to do with siblings. Okay, and what were the results? Well, we did find that um, according to parents' reports, the children were getting along better. Um, we had some videotape observation data, and those data also suggested that the children were getting along better in comparison to a control group that didn't have the intervention. One of my favorite findings, however, was that the mothers in the intervention group became less depressed. <laughs> Seriously? Seriously. We'll probably- The biggest effect and, you know, these constant squabbles between siblings, you know, it's not like their kids are beating one another into the ground, but, you know, it's just the constant, constant, constantness of sibling. Some of our colleagues have have reported that sibling conflict is parents' number one child-rearing concern. Mm
1: -hmm. Yay for only having one. (laughs) (laughs) So you did uh, make that study available to me. And so, Chris, I'll put it in the link available in the links in case anyone is interested in checking that out. As you were telling me about it, though, I'm thinking it sounds an awful lot like the book How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. Are you familiar with that?
2: I know of it. I have not read yeah.
1: it. So the kinds of skills that you're describing teaching children are very similar to the ones that are in that book. And there's a new version out, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen Right Now. And I yeah. did an interview with the co-author of that a few weeks ago. So parents might want to go back and listen to that Trying episode to get as well. children
2: to be able to do it with one another as opposed to adults doing it yep. to children. It's great for parents to do that because it is modeling I messages, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Saying how you feel in non-blame terms and that kind of thing. Yeah. But um, it's it's teaching young children to do it dyadically.
1: Yes. Yeah. Equipping them with the skills and then showing them how to use them. So less depression as a result. That's a pretty positive finding.
2: Oh, and, and teachers also reported independently that children were doing better in school. Uh-huh. Okay. The individual behavior of the siblings uh, improved.
1: Okay. So the trick then it seems is when your kids start fighting again is not to say, oh, not again, but this is an opportunity <laughs> and to use it as that teaching moment.
2: Yeah. Some of our research shows, you know, punishing them and, you know, go to your room, that kind of thing doesn't help. They need to know what to do not just what not to do, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that, that was another question I had for you as well, which is we, we've we talked a, a fair bit on the show about punishment and how the lesson the child learns from that punishment is very rarely the one the parent intends to teach. <laughs> is that, I assume, the case with siblings as well? And it, it, does the dynamic play out any differently when there are siblings involved when you're talking about punishment? Uh,
2: well, I think it's it can be easy to go wrong. I mean, one of the really important things is not to take sides when there's a sibling conflict cuz that's just going to exacerbate the rivalry. But that's tricky if you're pretty sure that you know who's causing what. But you know, why is that child causing the problems between the sibling? Well, you know, it may feel me because they feel that the uh, uh, their brother or sister is is the favorite. Mm-hmm. And one really great way to engender sibling conflict is through differential treatment and having a favorite.
1: Okay, but I mean deep, really deep dark inside something. Don't most parents have a favorite?
2: Um, Yes. When we ask parents about differential treatment and favoritism, most parents report that they do treat their children differently. So that's one thing. They're more likely to treat their children similarly in the domain of affection than they are in domains like shared time or discipline or privileges or chores allocation that kind of thing but nonetheless parents will will agree that they're more affectionate to one child than the other but that changes over time and so the child who gets more affection at one age may not be the one who gets more affection at a later age and you know mothers and fathers may differ in terms of who they're more affectionate with We know that when children think that the parent's treatment is fair, even if parents are saying that they treat their children differently, children don't show the same negative reactions, you may have a child who's very independent and very peer-focused and out of the home, and that child may just not need the same kind of affection and attention as another child who's a little bit shyer and less peer-oriented.
1: Okay, so so as long as the the siblings themselves see that difference, but recognize it as being fair to themselves, then then it's okay for that differential treatment to occur. Is that what you're saying?
2: Uh, the the negative implications are less pronounced. Okay. I would say the other thing is that talking openly about differential treatment in families could be a good thing because when children understand reasons for differential treatment. It's less likely to have the same negative uh, consequences.
1: Okay so along the lines of the description you gave about, you know, when I'm nine, I'll get to go to a sleepover as well. And and yeah. seeing that it's not just an arbitrary decision, the older brother gets to go and, and mm-hmm. I don't.
2: <laughs> and, and one of the reasons for differential treatment that kids can make sense of is if one sibling needs something more than the other. I mean, obviously that can go so too far um, and somebody can get neglected, but if, if a child is going through a tough time or a child has characteristics, even you know a, a learning disability that requires extra parental attention and time, that needs to be explained. You know, you might think other kids are picking up on it, but they may not. You may think that you're protecting the child with the special need by not talking about it. But kids notice, they notice from a very, very young age that one child is getting treated differently. 3 years old or even younger they can detect differential treatment by their parents and so rather than trying to pretend like you're not doing it talking about it and explaining why is is probably optimal okay
1: that's a key lesson for <laughs> parents of siblings, I think. <laughs> I'm just thinking back to an episode that we did on race a, a long time ago now. And I'd always assume that if you just don't talk about race, then it won't be an issue. And of course, I recognize it's my white privilege that allows me to, to do that. And yeah. when I started learning the, about the research on it, it turns out that actually, no, that's a great way to raise a racist child. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, so, so getting things out in the open and having a conversation about them, even if it probably feels uncomfortable to parents to acknowledge that, yes, I'm treating fine. your sibling differently to you is important.
2: And and listening to the child. I mean, there the child might have some solution that would make her feel really fine. You know, it's okay if you do this and that, but if you could just do this with me, then I would feel better. Yeah. Good good to hear that.
1: Yeah, and actually act on the child's suggestions as well, oh, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. um, So switching gears a little bit, (laughs) I want to try and make some sense of the research on birth order because there was so much of it out there that honestly, I really couldn't get my head around what was what. There was some research saying that opposites attract and that firstborns should only marry lastborns, which I hope doesn't spell divorce for my husband and I because we're both firstborns. Um, The firstborns are high achievers. The middle children are social pleasers and the lastborns are the fun loving ones. But then there was also research saying that the Big Five personality traits, which are supposed to measure kind of most of what a person's personality is, which are openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, and that sibling birth order has no impact on that whatsoever. And other studies saying it has a huge impact on that. And so, <laughs> what what on earth are we to make of that kind of body of research?
2: Um how can I answer that? It's, it's um,
1: a work in progress.
2: uh, Well, I'm not sure even about that. Okay. um, (laughs) I'll tell you when I first started my career, most of what was in the literature on siblings was about birth order. And, and it was so boring. I (laughs) I couldn't imagine want to study siblings until I started trying to understand how siblings treated one another and how they experienced their families. How, my question is, how does birth order translate into personality? How does birth order translate into anything? It happens because of how children are treated in families. Mm. It's not automatic. It's not magical. And so if you know that children who get more attention and whose parents who, who have lots of adults talking to them score higher on achievement tests, then the way to do that for all of your children is to make sure that they get plenty of time talking to adults. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's that, you know, it's harder when you have a second child than when you only have one and that's the only kid who's, who's around. But it doesn't mean that this is about intellectual achievement now. Yeah. It doesn't mean that a later born can't uh, achieve the same as a firstborn child. I don't think that the data on personality differences as a function of birth order are strong at all. Mm. I really don't. Mm. I, I, uh, I, I, you know, I. It, it's almost like astrology, from what I can tell.
1: <laughs> okay, uh, well, a definite I'm, science to some people I, who believe I, in it.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, you know, you look at the large studies, and you look at studies that compare children from the same family not just children from different families. You don't see as much in the way of clear-cut personality differences. People are just so much more complicated than something simple like birth order explaining Mm -hmm. a whole lot. And as I said, there's just so many experiences in families and in sibling relationships that could or may not create those those differences in outcomes. I think the, the more interesting question is What is it about family that gives rise to intellectual achievement or conscientiousness? Mm -hmm. And so understanding, for for me, the conditions under which two siblings will try to be alike so that they're both conscientious versus families where siblings try to be different from one another so that one is and one is not conscientious. To me, those are the interesting questions, not that it's somehow magically connected to birth order. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay, so just digging a little bit more into the intelligence example, because we actually looked at that in the last episode on only children, and did find that the research on only children showing that they tend to score better on intelligence tests. And I think the reason that researchers have posited for that is because they do spend time with adults having adult conversations using sophisticated vocabulary. And as the parents have more children, the the general conversation level seems to get pulled down to the capability of the lowest member. And so it seems to me what you're saying is to think about what, what are the qualities that you feel are important and that you want to foster in your child and how can you provide for those uh, even though you do have more than one child so maybe you know your second child gets to go and spend time with grandparents once a week or something and you know with no, with no other children around and, and have conversations about things that they're interested in or is that one way of getting at that kind of thing?
2: Right the findings that you're talking about are consistent with what's been termed the resource dilution hypothesis Okay. basically that the more siblings that you have the more children that you have in a family, the lower the average achievement. So it's it's not just that the firstborns are the highest achieving, but that you know as you go down the, the birth order, you, you know, kids will lose ground. I, I've seen studies showing that, well, there's one paper showing that children um, in Mormon families, you do not see the resource dilution effect. Mm. This is a culture where large families are valued, mm-hmm. and it's a communal oriented culture where there's a lot of adults who are interested in children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, a, in an individualistic culture where, you know, every family is an island, every nuclear family is an island, and, you know, you've got, one or two parents and one point, whatever it is, children for the parents to rear far away from nuclear family, not necessarily connected to a community of adults to back the parents up and to be there for the parents, then of course you're going to be able to see that effect more strongly. So depending on the larger context within which a family is embedded, you're likely to see different effects based on things like birth order, gender numbers of children, only children, and so forth. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is that researchers tend to look at child outcomes one at a time. So one group studies intellectual development, one <laughs> ki- group studies social development, and, you know, kids are a- come in a package. <laughs> oh, they do? <laughs> Fights and all. <laughs> so, you know, in terms of achievement, a point on an IQ test versus a kid who knows how to negotiate difficult social situations and is one or two points lower, who's the higher-achieving child? Yeah. Who's going to be yeah. the higher-achieving child? And we, we need to think more about the totality of the child's experiences rather than these sort of one-at-a-time outcomes without understanding Um, you know what the whole context of the child's life will is is likely to lead to
1: yeah which is much more difficult to do in a sort of objective scientific way (laughs) (laughs) which is an interesting question to be studying for your life
2: (laughs) yeah i've often had this perspective that as as my colleagues and i put it all good things are correlated that you know good parents have good kids and A kid who's good at this is also good at that. Mm. But, you know, when you look closely at people's lives, families and Mm -hmm. and individuals, we're constantly making trade-offs. You know, you can, you know, achieve here, but that means you can't do so well there. You can invest in this, but that means you don't have enough time, money, whatever it is, to invest in that. We're constantly making these trade-offs, and a lot of our studies because we look at one thing or one person at a time, it's easy to think that you know, there's one right way to do it. And if you only do this, good things will happen. But for any parent who's had more than one child, you begin to realize that the parenting books, which tend to focus on rearing a child, although they're increasingly including a chapter on siblings, <laughs> it's a lot harder when you've got multiple kids because the things that you do to promote the well-being of one child may or may not. Um, promote the well-being of the others Mm -hmm.
1: and i'm just this is sort of a a question of interest not that not for me because i'm not having a second child but i'm wondering about how important it is to be mindful about those trade-offs and just be aware that they're happening or is it just kind of something that happens in the background and and parents aren't really aware of it and maybe they realize years after that this decision they made for this child impacted the other child in that way What, what do you think about that
2: well, that's a very good question. I, I I do think people's lives are very busy, and most yeah. parents are running just to stay in place. Mm-hmm. And the idea of having the time to think through <laughs> what you're up to, um, you know, that that seems like a luxury. Oftentimes, mm. you know, there there are intervention techniques that are now being promulgated on mindfulness Mm -hmm. which is about being in the moment Mm -hmm. and paying attention to where you are now and not being distracted by, you know, what your meeting is going to require of you tomorrow morning at seven o'clock. That kind of thing. Maybe that will I mean it it has you know, the the data that are available suggest it can be really good for parents, for teachers, for kids themselves because you're thinking more about now as opposed to, as I said, getting distracted about other stressors in your life or other adventures in your life maybe that will make a difference time will tell yeah okay
1: so as we conclude here i wonder if there's a nugget of wisdom that you would like to confer upon parents of siblings
2: oh my i think just like parents who are invested in their their children think a lot about how to promote the well-being of their individual children thinking about how to parent siblings is a a different topic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the sort of one at a time, here's what I do for this one, this one, and this one, doesn't always sum to or doesn't sum to how, how we treat the siblings as a group and how we parent the siblings. But the parenting of siblings is just as important and challenging as the parenting of individual children, I would say. And deserves the same level of attention and investment. Does that make sense?
1: It does, yeah. I'm wondering if there's a specific resource or book or something that you might recommend for people who are interested in learning more about that?
2: One of my colleagues, Judy Dunn, wrote a book about the transition to becoming a sibling in the late 90s. And Judy was one of the most prolific and insightful researchers, scholars, that studied sibling relationships ever. So I would this Mm -hmm. is um, I would I would highly recommend that book. Okay.
1: thank you so much for sharing your time and your resources with us. And I hope that I never have to put this advice to good use, but I feel as though you've really given parents tools and, and concrete strategies that they can use to not just do well by one child, but to do well by their siblings as a as a team, as a family. So I'm so grateful for your sharing that information with us.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I would say in my own life, my siblings were the best present my parents ever gave me. And I was glad to be able to do that for my children. Ah, so
1: (laughs) (laughs) being undercut at the last minute. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's that's, that's about that for my words of wisdom. Yes. (laughs) Awesome.
1: Well, thanks again. And I just want to remind listeners that references for the show today can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash siblings.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift. Seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.